Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Attorney Vincent Davis, and the name of this show is Get Your Kids Back Now. The show is dedicated to keeping families together and to fighting the tyranny of CPS and DCFS social workers. The secondary purpose of the show is to educate parents and relatives or to at least show them where to get the necessary information for their fight. The final purpose of the show is to remind the people that change can be effectuated at the ballot box, at the state and federal levels. Let us unite, vote, and elect those who will make the necessary changes. Good morning, everyone. Today we have, at the 8.30 hour, we have a special guest, an attorney from San Francisco, uh, the city and county of San Francisco and in the surrounding areas. He pra- Mark practices in criminal law and representing people in juvenile dependency courts. He will be calling in at 8.30 and we will take his call. Right now we're going to take, we're going to take a few calls. Um, the first call that we have is from area code 510 ending in 30. Good morning. You're on Hello. with Attorney Vincent Davis. Good morning. You're on with Attorney Vincent. Good. How are Hello. you? Hello. Good morning. I'm doing well. How about yourself? Good. Good. Did you have a story to tell or a question to ask? Um, I actually have a story to tell. Okay. Go ahead. Um. So I um I have recently um had a cousin who um, last month, or back in March actually, it's already May, um, had a baby, and she, before she had the baby, she asked me if I would adopt the baby. This is a, a, a relative. Um, when the baby was born, she was born with drugs in her system. Um, I am a resource family, certified, have done, you know, already have all of my paperwork in place. Um, I um, when the baby was born, I reached out um, immediately to the social worker and let her know that I was available. I was a family, um, a resource family. I have everything that I needed. Um, she, you know, probed me about all the information that she needed to find on her end. Um, and then she let me know that she would need to contact her placement worker Um to let me know, like, what the next process was. So I said, okay, not a problem. So later on that evening, she left me a message stating that her um, that her placement worker said that what she would need would be my RSA number and my, um, you know, the agency's information where I was, was, where I had to go through the process. And to leave the information on her phone in the morning and that she was out of the office and that she would return um, the phone call if I didn't hear from her by the end of the day to give her a call back. So the next morning, um, I followed her instructions. I gave her a call, left a message. About 4.30 that next day, I did not hear from her. So I reached out, and I called her, and her response to me was, oh, you want the baby? And I was a little bit um, disturbed because I, you know, because I had spent, like, the day before maybe an hour, an hour and a half talking to her about 
me wanting the baby. So then, um, so then the next week, um, she, I get a call from an organization called uh, Fred Finch, and they let me know that there was going to be a child and family team meeting, and that there was um, another party interested in the baby, but um, they had reached out to that party. They didn't know if they were going to be there. They didn't think that they were going to be there. But that the meeting was that following Thursday. So I said, great. Thursday came around. They, you know, and I asked them, I asked um, at that time if I needed to come down um, to the meeting because we're in two different counties. They said no, that I could do, you know, a phone conference to the meeting, which was fine. So that Thursday came. They did the conference. A meeting, and there was the other party, um, which was the adoptive parent to the half sibling. Um, so we were in the meeting, and they didn't really prep me about, how, you know, what the meeting was for, how the meeting was going to go. So I was a little taken back by just the fact that there was another person there. Um, I didn't really know what to expect, but anyway, we, you know, we had the meeting. Um, there were some questions that they were asking me, like if the baby ha is going to be placed with this other party, you know, because they were relatives. If I had any interest in, um, if I had any interest in being the connection as the biological family, and I said, of course, absolutely, they're my relatives. So by you know any means, I would do that. Um, and so they, you know, they asked a couple of questions. Um, one of the things that was really disturbing was um, this um, other party. Um, now, I am African-American. My cousin's also African-American. And this gentleman is, um, he's Caucasian. So, um, so immediately, like, when we were having the um, meeting, they were, you know, you know, my cousin's um, issues with drugs arose. And it was just really disturbing, like, some of the information and just some of the comments that he was making about what his thoughts were about um, my cousin and her drug problem. And it was very clear that he had some information that, um, you know, although she's, you know, on drugs, a lot of the information was incorrect. Um, so one of the questions that I asked him, because they were asking me all the questions about if the baby was placed with him, so one of the questions that I had asked him was, you know, like, everybody's asking me about, like, if I am willing to um, step forward to be a part of these children's lives. And I said, but the question is, are you going to let me be a part of the, the kid's life if I, you know, like, if the baby's placed with you? His response was no. And he said the reason was because um, he had, you know, looked at the file. He thought that and originally when he first adopted the other kids, that that was a good idea. But now that he had, um, now that he had, you know, read the paperwork and all that, that he did not feel that that was a good idea. So I, um, you know, so I, you know, just let that be. I didn't go into detail or argue with him. And then, um, so the meeting was over, and because neither of us would agree that the other person should have the baby, um, they said that they had to reconvene. Um, the meeting and get back to us um, on Tuesday with their consideration for where the placement should be. 
so over the weekend, I had a little bit of time to think about, like, the meeting and, you know, just the comment that the social worker had made the Thursday before. So I drafted an email that just stated, you know, like, all the concerns that I had at the meeting and also why I felt like the baby should be placed in a home with a, a blood relative. So I cc'd the... The, the social worker, I cc'd the supervisor, and I also cc'd the baby's attorney. Um, so then that was on a mon Monday night. Tuesday, I get a phone call from the social worker, and she was very aggravated, very annoyed, and a little bit aggressive in the conversation. And she, you know, she said, well, I'm calling to let you know that um, we decided that we're going to place the baby with you. And, you know, and there were some questions that I had asked her within the email, such as, you know, can you let me know? Because this whole time after the baby had been born and my, you know, my cousin was discharged from the hospital, I had been trying to call to, you know, check on the baby, get the information, go visit the baby. They would not give me any of that information because they said that I needed to track down mama or I needed to get that, you know, verification through the a social worker before they can give me that information. And on the other hand, the um, other party had complete access to my cousin, the baby. Um, so then um, I had asked her in the email previously, like, what, you know, like, when, it, when are you going to release the van so I can go see the baby? Um, the other question I had was, did mama's um, wishes to have the baby placed with me hold any merit? Does that matter? Um, and their placement decision. And then the third question I had asked in the email was if she could reach out to the other party and see if he would be willing to allow me to connect to the other siblings. Um, so when she called, she was, you know, again, like I said, very, a little bit aggravated, a little bit, um, there was something that was just not professional about her being a social worker. And so her response was, we decided we we're going to place the baby with you. Um, however, um, you know, she said, I want you to know that this is a, you know, like it's totally up to the judge, so don't get too comfortable with this decision. And I hope that if the judge gives you this baby that you don't expose her to drugs. And at that moment, I was thrown back because I was like, wow, this is really, um, you know, this is really on so many levels just wrong. And so at the moment, like, I wasn't going to argue with her because, you know, again, they're the social workers. They have the power to say yay or nay to certain things. Um, so then um, that was on a Tuesday. That Friday, um, and then after, she, and then, you know, she lifted the band, so I did see the baby. So right away after she lifted the band, I came down, and I went to visit the baby, made sure I was present, made sure everybody knew that I was there, the doctors, the nurses everything. And then on Friday, um, I was still um, in the other county. And I get a phone call from her. And the phone call started out with her saying, you know, I am calling because I have a question for you. I was going through the email that you sent, um, you sent to me, and I noticed that you cc'd the baby's attorney. I said, yes, I did. And she said, well, I'm curious, how did you get that information? And I said, well, it's not um, it's not confidential information. It was fairly easy. I contacted the, uh, the defense legal services, and they gave me the number. She 
goes on to say, like, I don't understand why you're being difficult. This is, um, you know, this, it's not a big deal. It's just, I'm asking you a question. And I said, well, that is the answer. I'm a little bit confused because I'm not sure what you're asking, but that is where I got the number. She continues to get more um, aggressive and elevated in her voice, stating that I am not cooperating with her and that I need to just tell her where I got the baby's information from. So we went back and forth with that for quite a while. And then at some point I um, said to her, like, I'm not sure what's going on. I'm starting to feel really uncomfortable because you're asking me a question. I'm giving you the answer. You're then saying that I'm not cooperating and I'm just really confused as to what's going on. You sound a little bit angry. Can you, um, you know, like, I'm not sure what's going on, but if, you know, if we're having a hard time communicating, like maybe I should email you because maybe we would have a better um, form of communication that way. She would not agree to me sending her email. So we went back and forth again, and then finally I said, you know, like this is getting too much. I said, you're the social worker. You should have this information. I'm feeling uncomfortable. I don't know what you're getting at. She said, well, what I'm trying to get at is if you've had contact with um, mama, of the baby, and I said, oh, well, if that's what you wanted to know, I said, you could have asked me that, and I would have told you I haven't. I said, you know, the last time I had contact with, you know, the baby's mom was when we left you a conference call on the 12th of April stating that she wanted you, that she stated to you that she wanted me to have her baby. I said, that's the last contact. I said, I've been trying to contact her. Um, you know, myself, because I think that this process would be a little bit easier, honestly, and I said, but I have not heard from her. Um, so she was just a little bit aggressive, and, you know, that was, you know, that conversation was able to de-escalate the situation a little bit. Um, so then um, after I spoke to her, I turned around and I reached out to the agency in my county that I am working with that I got licensed through as an RFA family, and, you know, I said, I, I'm really confused. I'm not sure what's happening. You know, I feel really um, nervous about this because I'm not sure what's happening. She said, well, you know, I don't know. Like, maybe they do things different in the other county, but what it sounds like is maybe she's upset because you reached out to the baby's attorney. And I said, well, you know, when I went through this process with my little, like, I was always under the impression that I could reach out to the attorney at any point in time that I felt that there was necessary information for the attorney to have. She said, yes. She's like, I don't know. Like, this is, you know, she said, it sounds really strange. And so, you know, we just left it at that. So then that was on a Friday. The next day I went to, um, to the hospital. I was visiting the baby and the adoptive parent of the other siblings left the nurse a note to hand to me, and it was a note asking if I was willing to meet with him, um, you know, just to have a, a conversation. And I said, of course, not a problem. So later on that afternoon, I met up with him. Um, and the first thing that, you know, like when I met up with him, his um, he was very, very aggressive also, very, like, attacking of information. And his one of his first questions was, I don't understand why you are trying to, you know, snatch the baby away from her siblings. And I said, I am not trying to snatch the baby away from her siblings. And I said, honestly, 
you know, I said, this is baby number 10. And I said, you have three of nine other children. And I said, and I'm not by any means trying to snatch the baby from her sibling. I, I said, what I'm, you know, I said, what I'm a little bit curious about more is like, your process, how did you get invited into this? Like, what was the story? And what he explained to me was that that Thursday, um, so I talked to the social worker on Wednesday to let her know that I was interested um, in the baby. She told me to leave the information I did. And then he said on that Thursday, they had called him and said to him, um, Mama had another baby, do you want her? And his response was, yes, of course. And she said, okay, well, you know, you can come, you, you know, after everything's done, you can come and pick her up. And, you know, and I didn't really give him too much information off of my end. I just, this conversation was really about me trying to um, understand and obtain information from him to see how this, how he even got involved in, like, what was the story. Um, so then we continued to have conversations about, um, you know, his voice, he did not want to give me any information about the, even the boys' names at this point. And so we were talking, you know, just having conversation, and I um, had asked him about some of the concerns that I had for the boys, even though, like, they had already adopted them, but there was a new baby that, um, that he was fighting for. And so at that point in time, he let me know that he was obtaining an attorney, and that he did not want to send his boys through this because he felt like it was going to be traumatizing to them. And that, you know, like, you know, is there any way that I would just be willing to let the baby come with him? And my answer was absolutely not like, you know, I said, I have some concerns. I said, some of my concerns is that you don't seem very open to the, you know, the biological family, the kids getting to know their biological family. And I said, and, you know, my understanding of, research and just personal experiences, I said, when a child doesn't understand their foundation and where they come from, um, you know, th their understanding of themselves is always, um, it becomes at risk, you know, because they don't have an identity. And in particularly, you know, when they're placed in a culture that doesn't represent who they are. Um, and then I went on to ask him a question about, you know, because, you know, what I did know about him was that he lived in a very affluent white neighborhood with, um, at this point, it's three black boys. And I asked him after, you know, I said, you know, I am, you know, appreciative that you have provided a home and a container and a space for the boys. I said, my question for you that has been on my mind is, you know, I said, right now they're in a container. And I said, but these are um, black children, I said, what's going to happen after they step out of the container that you're providing for them? Are you in any way prepared to make sure that they're safe or make sure they understand how this country works for them? And, you know, and he got really angry and said that I was pulling the race card and that it doesn't matter, like, love is love. And I said, you know, I agree that love is love. And I said, and also, love is love, but when you're in the context of this country, I said, for black boys, I said, we're hearing all the stories about black boys and also little black girls that are being terrorized by our country. Um, I said, on so many levels, and I said, so my concern is that, you know, how are you going to be able to explain to them, to deal with them, 
and make sure that they have what they need around those particular issues. So he got really angry, and he said, you know, and then he jumped into the conversation about how the oldest boy he had been from foster home to foster home, and, like, nobody in our family stepped up. When the truth of the matter is what happened with the oldest boy was that he got adopted out to another family, and that family abused him. He went into the foster system. Again, both him and his sister, they did not, like, check in with anybody in our family. They didn't let anybody know that this was the case. So this baby did hop around from home to home. And then um, I said, you know, I said, it, it sounds like you're really angry about some things that, like, I said, I understand, like, you are blaming my cousin because you felt like she has an issue with drugs and all these things. I said, but that part, it wasn't necessarily, like, our family that did that. I said it was the system that settled him. And, like, you're not recognizing, like, the system and his family are two separate entities. And so he continues on. Um, you know, he continues on, still very upset, still very aggressive, and he's like, well, you know, I just hope you're prepared for Monday for this court date. And so I didn't even know because the social workers, nobody had told me that there was a hearing on May 6th, which is this Monday coming up. So then I um, went through every avenue possible to find out if there was a court date. Um, I finally... Um, found out that there is a court date on May 6th, and I had to find that out through calling a, a relative kinship member that um, that had information about the mom and the case in there. And they said, well, you know, that there, you know, we think that there is a court date. We're not sure what it's for. So then at this point, I'm calling around, speaking to different um, people, like trying to get attorneys, like trying to find if there's anybody that can support me, you know, and at the very least, like, represent, you know, represent me or anything pro bono, um, like, all of those things, and so I ended up talking to a lawyer who was not able to actually assist me, but she did, um, we did have a conversation about, like, the whole process, what was going on, and so I told her, I said, you know, like, I'm really, like, something feels really underhanded about the situation, like, I sent the social workers an email requesting you know, this information about the hearing, um, you know, that was Monday. It is now Thursday. I still have not heard from them. The, you know, the um, the hearing is Monday. I have no idea where, you know, where it is, how it's, you know, where it's going to be held, anything like that. And she said, well, you know, like what I can tell you is that I have been down to um, San Diego, she said, I've been doing this for 25 years, and she said, what I can tell you is, you know, find out the courthouse, and when you go, just go and wait, because there's going to be, you know, people outside, you're going to see the other party, all of that, and then they're going to call for that case, and you go in there with them, and so, I mean, I was like, okay, because I'm willing to do at this point anything, and at the same time, um, I'm having a hard time accessing you know, the information from the social workers that I should have had um, the right to have. So um, so yesterday, which was Friday, um, I decided, um, you know, at the very least what I was going to do, because I, so I found out the courthouse was uh, where it was, and so what I did is I went down there and I filed the JV-285 form, because at the very least I wanted to be able to have 
a say or like, you know, a presence to let the judge know at the very least that I am a relative, I am interested, even though they're, um, you know, even though their recommendation is to be placed with me, something seemed a little bit off. So I just, so I did that and, um, and, you know, and everything was done at the very, very last minute because I just, you know, had got the information to file that form. So then um, about four, uh, about 4.45 yesterday, which is Friday, um, I finally get a call from the social worker's supervisor um, explaining, you know, all the information. So it was literally at the last day, at the last, the last hour, the last minute, um, her explaining like, oh, there is a court date. This is what's happening. I just want to let you know that the, you know, that the other party has filed, um, you know, they had an emergency meeting with the court today so they can be, you know, so the lawyers can represent them. Um, and I just needed to let you know that. And so she goes on to explain. So we're having this conversation. And I'm like, I am just so confused about how the system works. I said, you know, what I understand is that there's the WNIC and there's state and federal laws. And I said, and what I understand within the WNIC, I said, is that a blood relative always gets preferential treat, um, you know, preferential um, choice to the baby. And I said, and I'm not understanding how is this happening? And furthermore, how has this been allowed to continue that, you know, you guys are not providing the information like all these things, and her response was that, oh, the social worker, you sent the email to the wrong email, so she didn't get it, she wasn't able to respond to you, and at the same time, I'm thinking, well, if she didn't get it, you did, because you're obviously, you obviously got something, because you're calling me, and, you know, so it was just really confusing, so I'm asking her the question, she was like, well, I just want to let you know, like, we are recommending that the baby be placed with you, um, but the judge can decide. The judge can interpret the, you know, the, the WNIC any way that he chooses to. So I just want to let you know that. And so I just feel like the system, um, you know, and then on top of that, just to add, you know, a little bit more context, like this whole time when I'm talking to this other party, um, he's sharing with me the process that he he was able to adopt the other two children, which was they basically didn't do any due diligence to find any family member. Like we have a huge, huge family. Um, you know, my grandmother honestly has over 250 grandkids and great grandkids from her nine children um, and just extended family outside of that. And no, nobody knew about these babies were being adopted out. Nobody. They did um, a fast track to adoption with the youngest one that he has, um, and he explained to me that the, you know, that the social worker said to him because my grandmother has one of the siblings. He explained to me that the social worker with the youngest one said to him, "Oh, you know, like uh, grandma has the other one, so I hope that you have a room prepared because." You know, I'm pretty sure that that one is not going to last that long. Just unprofessional kinds of things and how, like, they're part of their due diligence to find family was after the babies, you know, the youngest one that he has after he was adopted then. He gave them, they gave them him my grandmother's number and, 
you know, he tried to call or he said that he tried to call and the number wasn't working. And I said, well, that's odd being that my grandmother had the same number for so long. So there's just a lot of different um, moving parts um, in this story. And I tried to give you the, the short condensed version of it. Um, but it's, it's very, very disturbing um, on so many levels. Um, the system, how, like, I reached out, I'm being told, like, they had to do concurrent um, planning for this baby. That's why they reached out to the other party when they had all the information that they needed. This other gentleman, this other party is not licensed. They don't even have their RFA license anymore. And so it's just really interesting how this gentleman has had access to this baby, and I am being limited on so many different levels. And even when I talk to the social worker, because he's the, the other party is explaining, like, oh, we have access to this paperwork and that paperwork, and I'm saying to the social worker, like, something's off here because he has access to these things, and I am also a relative that should have preferential, you know, you know, choice of this baby, and I said, and you guys are still not providing me access to the same information, and her response is, well, he shouldn't have it either, so, you know, I don't know what there's, what's happening at the hospital because the baby, because she was a preemie, she's still currently um, in the NICU. So um, that's, you know, that's pretty much my story, and I am just looking, you know, and at this point I feel like we're at the last minute of the last hour, um, so I am going to show up at the hearing on Monday. I am going to be present. I'm hoping that, you know, through the JV uh, 285 that the judge will um, go ahead and read because I did attach a letter explaining to him, like, the importance of the baby having her cultural, you know, her cultural, um, her culture intact and how that's not going to only benefit her, but the intention for me is not just to, you know, have the baby, but also to have a connection with her brothers because I realize how, you know, important siblings are and that that these children that, you know, and I didn't go in the letter, I didn't go on about anything about the other party. What I just said was, you know, there's three siblings that have been placed out of family and my intention is to make sure that they are all connected so they know who they are and where they come from. So that, um, you know, so I, I wrote that. And so that's pretty much my story. There's a lot of, um, a lot in there to be had, but I appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to share the story. Did you um, ever get an attorney? Um, I did not get an attorney because, honestly, I cannot afford an attorney at this point. Now, you mentioned the cases in uh, San Diego County. San Diego sure. has three juvenile court houses, Meadowlark, South County, Vista. Oh, and they also have East County. Where okay, is and case? I know that the case... Our case is in, um, it is on Meadowlark. Okay, so you're in the main courthouse next to Rady's uh, Children's Hospital. Yes. Oh, I wish um, we had spoken earlier. There's so much that I could tell you. Um, 
from what you've told me, if it is true, uh, you have been misled, and I fear that you are being set up uh, not to get this child. Yes. There could be many reasons for that, um, most of which are probably, in my opinion, should not be considered by the court or by the social worker. Um, You're a a blood relative. The code is clear. Interestingly enough, the children that that gentleman has adopted are no longer relatives of this child. Yeah, he adopted them. They're his children. They're not related to your family at all. And I always find it interesting when the social workers try to use the biological relationship to their favor, but when it's not in their favor, it's, oh, your honor, they're not related. They, you know, the children were adopted. So they play or try to play both sides of that fence. One of the attorneys that works with me here is a former county counsel in San Diego. And she represented social workers in these types of cases. And she was, I believe, stationed at uh, the Metal Art Courthouse. I wish we could have talked sooner because I could have uh, put you in touch with her. Um, she knows a lot of the players and the people down there. Um, you know, do you have a pen and a piece of paper? I do. I want you to write this telephone number down, call it, and make an appointment to speak to me tomorrow. I know tomorrow's Sunday, but I'm, I'm totally booked today. Okay. It's 888 Call that number at about 9.30 a.m. today and uh, tell them that you spoke to me this morning on the radio and that I wanted you to make an appointment to speak to me uh, tomorrow on Sunday. Okay. I'm going to give you, you have a time. Do you have a time that you can call you? Okay. okay. You know, like 9, 10 o'clock in the morning. I have a lot of things okay. that I need to tell you, and we're running out of time now. Um, okay. We're past the halfway mark, and I have a special guest, an attorney from San Francisco, waiting on the line. And I promised uh, someone, that, another family, that they could get on the phone today and tell their story as well. So okay. um, give me a call, and I'll give you some pointers. It's unfortunate you don't have an attorney because one of the things that's going to happen is if they show up with an attorney, um, of course, you know, the judge will probably listen to them. And you won't have a voice because you, you'll be sitting in the back okay. of the, you know, the courtroom. Anyway, okay. give me a call. I'll give you some pointers, and I look forward to speaking with you t- uh, tomorrow. Okay. Okay. I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for listening. By the way, by the way, what county do you live yes. in? Um, I live in Alameda County. Okay. You know, there's so a theory that um, there's a theory that social workers don't like to uh, transfer children out of county or out of state because that right. means that the home county 
loses out on a lot of federal funds because the funds follow the child. Yes. All right. Well, I look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Okay. Thank, thank you. you and again, listening. I think I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, that's a typical story that I hear probably once or twice every week, 365 days a year, 52 weeks a year. It's just a very sad story. Okay, I'm going to take one more call before we go to our special guest. And it's area code 562, ending in 25. Good morning. You're on with Attorney Vincent Davis. Uh, good morning, Attorney. Um, hi. I would like to share a story also about DCFF. Go right ahead, please. Okay. Um, foremost, I would like to say that I understand their position and I support the need for children advocacy and protection, but I don't support an all-out operation against any adult whose name is mentioned in relation to an alleged abuse that's one-sided without accepting any facts from the adult as true. And I say that because um, in my uh involvement with DCFS, how I encountered DCFS was through um, an incident where my daughter assaulted me. And the whole entire ordeal took place over a cell phone. So I just want to advise parents to beware that technological addiction, phone addiction is like on the rise. And you can see it with even small children from like ages three and four years old. However, my daughter, um, as a corrective measure against her getting all Fs, uh, having some very unruly behavior and things like that, it ended up to the point to where I had to take her cell phone as a corrective method against the things that she was getting into, as any normal parent would have done. The following morning, uh, my daughter had thought that possibly she would find the telephone in the house because she thought that maybe as I would have hit it somewhere but I did not. And so she began to ransack the house before she got ready to go to school looking for the cell phone. When I asked her to lower her voice to a tolerable tone and to stop all the ruckus and commotion that she was causing, she became a little more irate and belligerent. So I kind of got out of my bed and went to the closet where she was to kind of guide her out of the room. And then I was uh, met with a barrage of fists. And so I did physically restrain my daughter because I was being assaulted and in me subduing her to the floor she ended up having some bruising on the side of her face and I'm not talking about a small child I'm talking about a 16 year old child and my daughter and I are kind of like similar in height and similar in weight so the police comes out but my daughter is more interested in trying to get that cell phone back so she tries to get the first officers to come to get the cell phone back from me. And they almost did fall for it, but then their supervisor came out. He came in, he asked both sides of the story, and the police report stated me as the victim. Like basically my daughter was the batterer, I'm the victim. I thought that all of it was said and over with, so I went on about my, my business. Um, the next evening, I was called um, by a relative who said that I needed to come home because uh, someone from DCFS was at my home. And I was thinking that's interesting because I wouldn't understand why they would be at my house. 
However, I later would find out that um, about one or two o'clock the next day after the incident occurred that my daughter, at the influence of her paternal side of the family, went to the high school that she goes to and stated that um, she had been assaulted by her mother. And so um, throughout my whole entire experience with them, um, I want to say that they were biased, that they were unobjective, and that they were impressionable and lacked discernment. And the reason why I say that is because um, they they weren't open to anything that I was saying because they were accepting my daughter's words as the Bible, meaning that they thought that what she was saying was absolute truth and that anything that anyone that was an adult was saying, contrary to the child, was a liar. And I found that um, something that was very difficult for me to grasp because I have never been abusive to any child in my entire life. And so when I tried to explain to them that my daughter was basically being puppeted by her paternal family who had um, basically conspired with her because what they didn't know, there was a lot, of, a lot of underlying things that was going on in this situation that they didn't have any information about. And when I would try to give them this information, they would just tell me, well, the reason why you're here is because you abused your daughter. And I'm thinking to myself, that's interesting because the police said that I was abused. And all they had to say about that particular police report was that that's the only reason why you're not in jail, but that doesn't mean that you didn't abuse your daughter. And so um, when I did try to explain to them that if this was some people, uh, my paternal side of the my daughter's paternal side of the family, meaning her grandmother and her aunt, they were basically trying to influence my daughter to do this to me. And and I'm not disputing that my daughter at 16 doesn't know what she's doing, too, because I know that she full on has the mental capacity to know what she's doing as well. And I know that she has a lot of bitterness and I know that she was angry and I know that she wanted that cell phone. But to try to have child abuse charges brought up against someone when you know, in fact, you weren't abused and that you were the person who assaulted your your parent, um, I think that it is a very, very disheartening thing for any parent to have to suffer. And I say all this because there's some things in my past that happened back in 2005 that left my daughter's father, um, which is an innocent person who's in prison. He's in prison, but I got out of prison. And so because they let me go and they kept the father, the paternal side of the family, they blame me that he had to stay in jail while I got to go free. And so what the DCFS people were not willing to understand was that these people were conspiring against me because they had hoped that this whole ordeal with this child abuse situation would get me put in jail. And when that didn't when that didn't happen for them, they began to tell them like things like, well, she's on parole and blah, 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 blah. And I think that all of these different things biased them against me to try to believe that I had really uh, physically harmed my daughter in some intentional way, which is totally untrue. There were people in the house when it happened. They all knew that my daughter assaulted me, and they all knew that my daughter was going through with this because my daughter's paternal aunt and her 
were conspiring together to get whatever monies that this government agency gives for people who have this children. This is the um, thing that my daughter and her paternal aunt were in collusion trying to do. And later on, I ended up finding out that not only were they colluding to get this check for my daughter, they also, when my daughter, who I I failed to mention because there's so much that happened in this incident, my daughter ran away from all the placements that they put her in. But the the first place that she ran away from, somewhere in Hollywood, she left with some uh, guy that she met in that in that facility and my her paternal side of the family i keep wanting to call them my ex-in-laws that's what the stammering is about my daughter's paternal side of the family also housed another person some boy that had ran away from the facility as well and when i would try to tell dcfs all this information they wouldn't believe a word of it even though everyone who knows about this case knew that these things were true and my daughter somewhere along the line told me that at some point her aunt was going to even try to uh, have her mother be the caretaker for the boy also so that they could get the money for him and it was my daughter's decision to say this is enough he has to go so to say all this is to say that this entire case was bought against me it started because my daughter would not, could not have her cell phone, but it went on because my daughter's paternal side of the family were influencing her to do these things to me where my daughter was being kind of blindsided because, of course, she wanted to get her phone back, and she was angry about the correction that had to come in her life because of the things that she had did wrong. But ultimately, what my daughter couldn't see was that people who have a uh, a healthy dose of hatred towards her mother was using her as a weapon against me. And the uh, incompetency of the social workers and their failure to see all this ultimately resulted in me um, having a no contest plea because the attorney that I had in the situation, even though I gave her a list of school deans who said that my daughter had been in some type of uh, street fight, um, I gave her uh, videos of these occurrences that had been posted on the Internet. I gave her the police report saying that I was a victim. And what her, uh, what her information to me was, well, I can drag all these witnesses in here one by one if you would like me to, but it still is not going to really matter because the judge always kind of sides with the children in these cases, and they have the lesser burden to prove. And I was thinking to myself, I really don't feel like this is the right decision, but when you have an attorney that's directing you to say that and they're telling you that um, that it's, she, she kind of kind of told me, she texted me some information telling me that she was going to get the, the uh, serious um, physical abuse dismissed because I still like have all this information like with me. Um, and so from my understanding, she was getting the serious uh, offense, which some kind of 300A, and that it was going to be a 300B count. 
But later I would find after I entered that no contest plea at her urging that that was all wrong information. And when I sought to withdraw the plea, they kind of gave me the runaround and none of them were willing to uh, go back on their word that they in fact had said that it was a 300B count versus a 300A count. And so the entire ordeal ended with me being um, put, I want to say, at a disadvantage career-wise and economic-wise because of those decisions by all of these other factors that no one in DCFS or the attorneys who were uh, last handling the case were um, willing to listen to as true. And um, ultimately, I just decided that, you know, just like those charges being dropped against, you know, a person that's in the media right now doesn't mean that that person isn't guilty. Oftentimes what society or the public doesn't understand is that just because someone is convicted or was misdirected to plead to something that they didn't do, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are guilty. But parents need to be aware that it seems to be a, a new occurrence that there's some kind of scheme that's going on with a lot of these teenagers who are, you know, rebelling against their parents, because I have met a lot of parents that are saying that their children are reporting them for child abuse simply because they don't want to listen to them in their home. And now I'm not talking about small children that are defenseless. I'm talking about 16, 17, 18 year olds raising themselves up to assault their parents and then switching the situation around and the parents are being left uh, with, with uh, charges of um, uh, substantiated charges of child abuse. I, you know what? I understand completely what you're saying. I'll tell you a quick story that happened to me um, probably 10 years into my career. I was representing a gentleman who was in jail and uh, he had been accused of sexually abusing the his stepdaughter, who was 16 years old at the time. And um, he was the father of the half-sibling, which was a, you know, a one-year-old baby. Anyway, he was arrested, put in jail, and uh, served a sentence, and then he was deported because he was here illegally. Um, and, you know, he never had contact with his his baby after that years go by and I'm uh, I'm in another office building um, and I'm in the library the law library in this building and I happen to notice that there is a woman sitting at the table and I recognize her it was the victim of the you know of the case uh, where I represented this gentleman and she looked at me I looked at her she knew I recognized her I knew she recognized me, but I didn't say anything to her, and I just left the library. A couple weeks goes by, and I see her again in the library working. Apparently, she was working for another law firm on that floor. And um, this time, she says something to me. She says something like, um, you know, do you remember me? And I said, I certainly do. I'm sorry I don't remember your name, but I know exactly who you are. And she says, you know, um, I have to confess something to you. And I said, what is it? She says, well, what I told the judge in both cases, the judges in both cases, the juvenile case and the criminal case, uh, wasn't true. You know, he he never uh, sexually abused me. 
And she says, I'm very sad about it. And I asked her, I said, why are you sad about it? And she said, well, because I wanted him out of the house because he was very strict. He didn't, um, you know, let me go out with my friends and out on dates and to parties and stuff. And I wanted to do that, and he wouldn't let me. And my mother went along with his decisions. She said, but what makes me really sad about the entire situation is that my baby brother grew up without a father. He is, you know, growing up without a father. And it's wow. all because of what, what I said and did as a teenager. And I right. said, well, and have that's, you seen that's or true. heard from I said, have you seen or heard from, you know, the stepfather? And she says, no. We've tried to contact him. We've tried to find him. And either, you know, he's just lost someplace, someplace in Mexico or he doesn't want to have any connection with us because of what I did. And she said, it's hard for me to live with that. And that's very true. What, what I found in um, people who I've uh, kind of bonded with that experienced it is it's kind of like a parent destruction type of thing because these parents are separating from their children that uh, make these false uh, allegations against them. But once these charges stick, it's like, you know, uh, uh, bitter pills that people just can't stomach. And so um, I didn't want to be one of those people because I am a forgiving person. And, and so many times um, I kept uh, – oh, what I, what I also didn't mention to you was that when my daughter ran away from all these places, she just lived in the house with me the whole time. And the social workers tried to tell me to change my address so that it could appear that my daughter wasn't living with me because it was illegal <laughs> for her to be living with me. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Listen, I want to thank mm-hmm. you for sharing your story with me. I have to move on in, into the show, but keep listening every yes, Saturday. Thank you for having me. Okay, thank Already. you. Okay, right now, folks, I'm going to bring on the line an attorney. His name is Mark Pelto. He is from the Bay Area, and uh, he is an experienced attorney not only in criminal law, but in juvenile dependency. Hey, Mark, this is Vince. How are you? Oh, good. How are you doing? Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for calling in this morning. Mark, before we begin, because we have listeners all over, especially up in your area, in the Bay Area, why don't you tell us your full name, give us your address, your telephone number, your website, your email, so that our listeners up there can contact you if they need an attorney. Sure. My name is Mark David Pelta. My office is located next to City Hall in San Francisco. That's at 234 Venice Avenue. My office phone number is area code 415-963-1152. My website, which is probably the easiest way to remember me, is Pelta Law. So that's my last name, P-E-L-T-A-L-A-W.com. And my email, which is also, I think, easy to remember, is mark, M-A-R-C, at paltalaw.com. Very good, very good. How long have you been an attorney, uh, Mark? 
A bit over 10 years. Very good. Did you go to law school up in the Bay Area? No, I didn't. I um, graduated from the City University of New York School of Law, and I did one semester in Los Angeles. Oh, very good. Very good. So tell us about your practice. Who do you represent? Well, I represent, uh, as you shared earlier, uh, parents in juvenile dependency cases. I also represent minors in juvenile delinquency cases, both misdemeanor and felony crimes. And then finally, I represent adults in misdemeanor and felony cases, primarily around the Bay Area, but occasionally I do go outside the Bay Area as well, depending on the needs for a specific client. You know, I've been doing cases in the Bay Area recently, and I always thought the Bay Area, you know, I just thought of San Francisco. And I didn't know until about a year ago that San Francisco is a city and a county by itself. But tell us about the other surrounding counties that are up there where you represent people in juvenile dependency cases. So um, primarily when it comes to juvenile dependency cases, I represent clients in San Francisco itself. However, um, I am available to clientele outside of San Francisco. We have nine Bay Area counties. So as you correctly pointed out, the Bay Area is a bit more than San Francisco itself. The city of San Francisco is actually very small, and they say it's even more dense than Manhattan, New York, for people who are familiar with that part of the country. We have Sonoma County, Marin County, San Francisco, San Mateo, Santa Clara County, Alameda County, Solano County, Napa County, and Contra Costa County. I think that's nine counties. And occasionally, some people even consider Sacramento and even San Joaquin counties and Stanislaus County to be part of the quote-unquote greater Bay Area because as the cost of housing in the Bay Area itself becomes astronomically higher and higher, people are forced to move out farther and farther. And so they will frequently commute three to four days a week into various locations in the outer Bay Area simply just to be able to pay their bills. Where is Santa Rosa? Is that Sonoma County? Yes, correct. And in in fact, uh, you just reminded me by asking that question, I actually have a pending case in juvenile dependency court in Sonoma as we speak. You know, I uh, am flying up to Santa Rosa tomorrow to start a jurisdictional and dispositional hearing in uh, Santa Rosa on Monday morning at 9 o'clock. Oh, good times. (laughs) I wish you luck. So do you represent mostly parents in juvenile dependency cases? Do you ever represent relatives who are trying to get the child placed with them out of foster care? The answer is yes. And actually there's a case right now where I represent uh, foster grandparents actually in Sonoma County Superior Court. And they're hoping at the end of the process to have the baby permanently placed with them. But at this point, reunification efforts are taking their course, and we have to 
abide by the court's rulings, but on the other hand, also be mindful of the fact that if there's an end game in sight, should the parents be unable to reunify with their child? Mm-hmm. Mark, tell us what about uh, tell us about one of the most interesting cases you've dealt with in the past year or two. Well, um, hmm, approximately two years ago, it's almost going on three now. I had a client come to me through a, through a referral slash friend. Another attorney actually was good friends with him, and. The um, referral actually, uh, the referring attorney actually said to me confidentially, I just want you to know this guy's a real criminal. And what I always tell attorneys who refer cases to me and clientele, I don't judge people. A person comes into my practice, whether or not they're guilty is completely irrelevant to me. They're entitled to the best defense and if we make a good match between attorney and client, then my job is to defend them to the best of my ability, not whether or not they're actually guilty. As it turned out, this client had um, ordered a significant quantity of MDMA pills from outside the United States. And they came into the United States and were flagged by federal authorities. He was subsequently arrested for having signed for them. And so this case made its way through one of the local Bay Area counties. I won't get too specific because I don't know if law enforcement is, you know, can pick up on this stuff, but sometimes they do. And the case has not gone to trial yet. It's going to be going to trial soon. I'm no longer the case attorney, but I was able to do some significant damage to the DA's case. But uh, that's a case where a person is now facing potential prison time because of a big mistake that they made. And this person has a respectable job, makes a very good living, but he's facing some real serious consequences for a mistake that he allegedly made. Mark, tell me what you think about the social workers up there in the Bay Area. You know, that's, a mixed bag. I really, and I was listening to some of your earlier callers, and I'm, I sympathize with them. I really have seen the full range of social workers, much like you and the callers described. I have seen social workers who are consummate professionals, and then I have seen those who are not. They're in particular, was a social worker who comes to mind right now in one of the Bay Area counties that I practice in, in a dependency case, where I caught her lying to me. And I realized that if it was about me, and it's never about me, right? But if it was about me, and if, if my ego was involved, which I always try to, any good attorney, I think, tries to keep their ego out of a case, I told my client and her boyfriend, I would have gone straight to the dispositional 2-6 and proved that the social worker is a liar. But in the end, who would have gotten hurt? Not my client, her son. So I obviously kept copious records of what the lies were. 
and how I would deal with them should we have to go to a dispositional hearing. However, as it turned out, the client, unfortunately, fell right into the trap of the social worker. I guided my client. My client rejected my advice. I can't make anybody take my advice, and unfortunately, that client was not in a position to take, frankly, anybody's advice. So that particular case showed me, frankly, what the worst kind of social worker can be, and that, I think, was because this was a social worker who, in it was very clear, was trying to sabotage my client's ability to reunify with her son at every conceivable opportunity that my client fell off the wagon, so to speak, with her addiction issues. But she would get back on the wagon. She wasn't, she was not a quitter, you know, as many people who struggle with addiction, you know, will oftentimes, you know, fall on and off the wagon, so to speak. On the other hand, I have seen social workers who go even more than the extra mile to make sure that a child can reunify with the parent. And they understand that a parent is not going to always meet their expectations at every single moment or week, should I say, in the process. Because it's a process that can last anywhere between 12 and 18 months, generally speaking, right? So I really have seen you know, the spectrum, and I, I have seen social workers such as your callers were describing earlier to be candid. Have you ever been involved or involved with civil rights cases against social workers who have been less than truthful in a report or on the witness stand? You know, I haven't. However, I, I did hear of one or two uh, that um, were actually litigated out of Southern California, I think the San Bernardino area. And I think in one of the cases, and I don't remember the name, but I remember I know the attorney, and she told me she actually was able to score a pretty big victory. And I think the case had gone up on appeal and then was remanded back to the lower court. I don't remember more about it at the moment. But so I haven't been involved directly, but I do know that these cases are not large in number from what I hear, but they are making their way through the system. Unfortunately, I, I don't think there are enough of them to actually change some of the unsavory practices that I think some of the social workers, not all of them, but some of them are involved in. Right, right. Um, in When you represent a person uh, at the do you ever do like contested detention hearings or contested jurisdictional and dispositional hearings? The short answer to that thus far is no, and I'll explain why. Unfortunately, the way I think the uh, the dependency process is statutorily laid out, in other words, for those of the public who are listening who are not experienced in the judicial process for this, um, the process is very clearly written out almost step by step, not almost, it is written out step by step in the Welfare and Institutions Code, such as Sections 300 and so forth, but mainly 300 for the dependency cases, right? And I've, I, the way I have seen these cases evolve, I'd say almost 99% of the time, is 
the parent who's struggling with whatever issues they may be struggling with, and not every parent is, let's be honest about that, uh, they, they tend to make their biggest mistake at the detention stage where they really should be on their game. But that's just not the reality. There's, you know, unfortunately, upheavals in some families, certain issues in families, and they don't have the resources, whether it's financial, emotional, whatever it may be, to make that clear-headed decision. Maybe they don't even. Maybe they are sober. Maybe they're very accomplished, but they don't know of a good attorney to reach out to within that short span of time. It really is a very short span of time where a parent has to hire a good attorney and to be able to fight their case at that detention hearing. And once that's blown, in my experience, then you're just finding an uphill battle at every step of the way on your way to the jurisdiction, to the dispositional. So it can't, I don't, I'm not saying that all is lost by any means, but Unfortunately, once a person in the judicial process experiences a loss, right, but if one loses a detention hearing, it, it is a loss. It can be undone down the road through good attorney advocacy, but if the client doesn't have various resources behind them, whether it's emotional, financial, and otherwise spiritual, to go forward, uh, they can falter. And there are social workers who will take advantage of it. And so that by the time you end up trying to get to a jurisdiction, to the dispositional and jurisdictional steps, stages in the case, um, it's for all intents and purposes almost lost. And so at that point, an attorney like myself, most of the time, I'm doing damage control. Now, but every case is very different. So, for example, the case that's pending now in Sonoma, I'm not going to be handling that case the way I did with the San Francisco dependency case over the last year and a half because one involved a parent who was accused of some 300 violations. And here, my clients haven't been accused of anything by the by the agency, right? They're uh, the foster grandparents, and so they actually look pretty good in the process. So those are my views in answering your questions. I hope I've been direct in answering them. Yes, thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. You know, we're running out of time for today's show. Do me a favor. Uh, Tell us your name and your email and your phone number again so that people can get a hold of you. And uh, I hope that you will be uh, a guest in the future. I look forward to it. Thank you very much for inviting me. My name, once again, is Mark Pelta, and my website is Pelta Law, so that's spelled P-E-L-T-A-L-A-W.com. My phone number is area code 415-963-1152, and my email is mark, M-A-R-C, at Pelta Law. Dot com, And finally, my office is located at 234 Venice Avenue in San Francisco, next to City Hall. And thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you, Mark, and we'll be talking to you soon. Take care. Have a nice weekend.
Okay, folks, we've gone over a little overtime today. We have to end the show. But thank you for listening, and keep listening every Saturday at 8 a.m. Um, please call my office. If you want to speak directly to me, you can make an appointment, 888-888-6582. Also, you can call the office and request my book, The Secret, How to Fight Child Protective Services and Win, and we'll mail you out a copy. Or we'll tell you how to go online and get a free PDF copy of the book. Again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week on the radio.